0: Who knew that Pakistan would be leading America when it came to feminism and women in position of power? So that should have definitely been a red flag throughout this episode that people should keep in mind, right? Like, we keep saying, like, are we ready for a women president? Why is this a conversation, right? My name is Adela Kochav. And I'm
1: Mariam Waba. We are the Daughters of Diaspora. And this is Americanish. Welcome back to american This week, we're breaking down the history and patterns of women in leadership, particularly the history of women who ran for the office of president of the United States of America. We'll be covering the brief history of women in leadership in our respective home countries
0: and beyond. As you may have heard or seen on the news, former South Carolina governor and U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under President Trump, Nikki Haley, announced she will be running for the presidency. Haley is definitely
1: not the first woman to run for this office and we will have to travel back a couple of decades to find Victoria Woodall. Woodall was one of the most prominent figures of the 19th century. A women's rights and suffrage advocate, a popular public speaker, a newspaper publisher who introduced American audiences to the works of Karl Marx, the first woman to operate a Wall Street brokerage firm, Woodall became the first female presidential candidate in 1872. And Adela, this woman was incredible. She was born into poverty and forced into a marriage at only 15 years old. Um, When her husband, uh, when it became apparent her husband was not the best guy, uh, she had to work odd jobs to make ends meet. She eventually was divorced and remarried, and her and her sister actually founded the first ever female-owned brokerage firm on Wall Street. But wealth was only the start for Woodall. What she really cared about was women's rights, civil rights, and much, much more. After she started the firm, she also started a newspaper, which published published the first English-translated account of Karl Marx's The Communist Manifesto. She was also the first woman to directly address a congressional committee, arguing that women already have the right to vote under the 14th and 15th Amendment, but urged Congress at the time to still unequivocally solidify that right with the 16th Amendment.
0: At the height of her fame, Victoria mounted a presidential campaign against Ulysses S. Grant, who was a Republican, and Horace Greeley, who was a liberal Republican, after being nominated by the Equal Rights Party. Frederick Douglass was nominated to be her running mate, but he never accepted the nomination formally or acknowledged the campaign. Victoria's campaign platforms included universal gender and racial equality under the law, civil service and taxation reform, and opposition to land grants given to railroads and other corporations. Even though she had not yet reached the constitutionally mandated age of 35 to serve as president, Victoria Woodhull is still regarded as the first female presidential candidate.
1: Since Woodhull, there have been about 22 women who officially ran for president. In 1964, Margaret Chase Smith became the first woman to have her name placed in nomination for president by a major party. The first African-American woman to throw her name in the hat was Shirley Anita Crisson in 1972. In July of 2016, Hillary Clinton became the first woman to be a major party's nominee for president. We fast forward a couple of years and the names start to sound more familiar. Think Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Kristen
0: Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, and so forth. So why is it that America cannot elect a female president while other countries seemingly less advanced or progressive in this field have been doing so for years? And that's a big question in this episode.
1: That is absolutely right. That is going to be our big smack down the middle question for this episode. And it's really a difficult question to navigate. Um, And our regular listeners and followers and friends even know where we stand on some of the woe me feminism, fourth wave feminism that tends to happen uh, when it comes to women's rights, women's empowerment um, and I think I can speak for both Adele and I when we when I say that there's no part of us that thinks women are oppressed in the West here in the. US particularly or anything like that. We know this because we've been uh, we've both seen what real oppression looks like uh, and we both have, uh, easily, easy access to what real oppression looks like today happening in Afghanistan, in Egypt, and and every other corner of the earth. Now, this does not mean that sexism does not exist. I will say it again. Now, this does not mean that sexism does not exist. In fact, there is a thousand percent a double standard here, uh, when it comes to women in a lot of fields, particularly politics, um, I remember when Hillary Clinton was running, uh, there was a very open and public discussion about her menstrual cycle. Um, I could not believe it at the time. I remember there was uh, an article, or, or rather, like somebody wrote to an editor in a Pennsylvania newspaper wondering how Clinton's decision-making would be impacted by her time of the month. And those are using his words and it was published and um, the conversation was not, it's, it's really insane. And this was not being, you know, whispered across the street or, you know, being discussed in the shameful way in which the people that were saying it knew what they were doing was wrong. But it was a very public discussion that landed in newspapers and on early morning shows um, and openly discussing her menstrual cycle, her period and how that's going to affect her decision making. And some people will be like, well, it's it's a real discussion. It's an honest discussion. It's an actual question that voters have. I call BS. Um, Mm -hmm. And the hardest thing that comes uh, with being a woman running for president is discussing this double standard because by discussing them, women evidently, inevitably end up feeding into them. Um, When asked about how gender affected this race just 48 hours after she ended her campaign, Then-presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren said, you know, this is a trap for every woman. If you say, yeah, there is sexism in the race, everybody thinks you're a whiner. And if you say, no, there is no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? And she's absolutely right. There is no winning. If you ignore the sexism, you in a way, lose the woman's vote or, or you don't have the full support of the woman's vote, the woman that experienced the sexism in the workplace, in, in the relationships, in their social and cultural lives. Um, but if you do address the sexism, you sound like you're trying to win some points or, uh, you know, seem like you're oppressed in any way, which obviously in a lot of ways you're not because you're running for freaking president. Um, mm-hmm. Adela, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think I think you're 100 percent right. I think that America has created equal opportunity, but it's stuck in this mentality where women are kind of like this taboo thing. So like, for example, like going back to the Hillary Clinton conversation, like it's crazy that maybe not our listeners, but for a lot of people, that is a quote unquote valid conversation as if they've never spoken to a woman in their lives being like, oh, once a month, they got to hide in a cave, you know, for a full week, they just got to hide in the cave and we can't have a president that has to hide in a cave. It's like, have you met a woman? H- have you met a woman? And, um, I think that, you know, um, Elizabeth Warren is hundred percent right. I think that when we do acknowledge sexism, we, we are put in this, uh, you know, woe is me box when really it's acknowledging a real problem that we have here. Um, not just in the U S but a, a real problem, a, a global phenomenon where, um, women are seen different. And I think in a way it's because, um, of an identity politics situation where we have to talk about being a woman because it's a real experience, but then people who are not women use that against us, you know? So it it is this very weird double-edged sword.
1: Right. That's a really great point. We do talk about who we are as women because it's a very different experience. And when we do, it seems like we're trying to, we're not trying to like take ourselves out of the game, any game for matter of fact, but Mm -hmm. we're rather just trying to share the hardships of what it means being a woman. Um, So the next question that usually comes up in the conversation is, how close are we to a woman president? It seems like we've gotten pretty close in the last few races, um, but something is missing uh, and a very obvious something at that. And obviously we can't predict the future, but what we can do is look at numbers. Um, Although we do know from those same past uh, elections that numbers don't show us the whole picture. A survey that was conducted with 1,016 participants with equal number of males and female Democrats and Republicans. Um, Both times the survey was conducted, it was conducted twice, the survey found that being female actually gave candidates a small but clear advantage. That was pretty shocking to both of us and I wanna dig in a little bit deeper there. But holding everything else equal, voters as a whole were six percentage points more likely to choose the female candidate over the male opponent if all political um, issues aligned with their views. Um, I I found that to be pretty surprising uh, if presented with a male candidate that holds a certain set of uh, views and a female one that holds the same set of views. A female is six percentage points more likely to be chosen by um,
0: electors. What do you think about that? So I'm I'm actually very comfortable with this number because six percentage points is large enough where it shows that, you know, being a woman could serve as a, a non-disadvantage. I'm not going to exactly say advantage, but it could be that if you give a voter pool to candidates, uh, being a woman isn't going to hinder you. And uh, the reason why I'm comfortable with the 6% number is because it's not that large. And I'm a very big uh, believer in meritocracy. I'm a very big believer in um, you know, credentials as opposed to identity. And I feel like the 6% number makes me feel like we as a society can have a meritocracy. We can acknowledge difference and appreciate difference, but at the same time, we can focus on policy. Um, but I, I do want to turn our attention to the rest of the world. Other countries have been selecting and electing female leaders for decades and even centuries. So um, Indira Gandhi became the first Indian prime minister in 1966. Golda Meir was elected Israel's prime minister in 1969. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister of the U.K. throughout the 80s. Corazón Aquino was sworn president of the Philippines. And you also have the top leader in Pakistan in 1988 was also a woman, Benazir Bhutto. And then, of course, you've got Ireland, Lithuania, France, Turkey, Poland, and Canada, who have all had women heads of state during the 1990s. Angela Merkel became chancellor of Germany in 2005. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf became president of Liberia in 2006. And more recently, the Finnish prime minister, Sanna Marin, briefly occupied the youngest head of state in the world. And she is the third woman to ever lead Finland.
1: And it... obvious that our question is like what is the missing link america is one of the most progressive if not the most progressive country in the world on pretty much all issues um but countries like india pakistan lithuania philippines france turkey are are all beating us in this game of electing Mm -hmm. uh females as heads of state as leaders um and there's a lot of different theories as to why there is, and, and I think it's gonna be hard for us to come to a conclusion as, as we tend to do, we ask a lot more questions and we provide answers on American-ish, but that's part of the fun. Um, what we do present is some theories. So one answer presented by Time Magazine argues that it could be because the American political system is more of a popularity contest compared to any other country. And this creates some unique and critical challenges for some of our women leaders. In a parliamentary system, like a lot of the countries we just listed, women are more likely to land leadership positions. Debbie Walsh, director of the Center of American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, somebody who knows what they're talking about, says it might be easier for women to achieve executive roles in parliamentary system, like in Germany, the UK, or Finland, because parliamentary systems might be more favorable to women because they don't vote for prime minister. It happens within the institution. In other words, what she's trying to say is it takes away the popular vote, like go back to any situation in your life, maybe high school, maybe middle school, where it was a popularity contest, where things people would say what they needed to say to get elected to the student government. I being one of them, I'm shameless about it. Um, And imagine if you took away the electoral system. And obviously, we're not advocating for that in any way. We're just... Providing some some alternatives, um, and made it more of a parliamentary system where the institution itself elects this leader as opposed to a democratic uh, the democratic system that Americans are familiar with, where we go to the polls and check off boxes. Um, she continues by saying the party becomes the majority, and then the parties can do more structurally for women to attain leadership. And Adela, I'm really curious to know what your thoughts are on this particular. Uh, analysis of a parliamentary system. Given that what you just said about a meritocracy um, and how much we both value and uphold democracy.
0: Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm not the biggest fan of um, a parliamentary system. Getting more women elected. It's it's great that it happened, but it's sad it had to happen that way. I'm a, I'm a very big fan of taking away power from the parties and giving power to the people and having the people direct, um, directly elect. So I I do think the closer we can get to direct democracy, the better. Um, but that doesn't mean that female leaders haven't been elected through a popular system. Before we get to that, I do want to say I ran for president in middle school. Um, and I, um, actually won but it wasn't necessarily because of the popularity contest i got very lucky in that i ran against two boys so they divided the male vote and i wholeheartedly won the female vote and that's that's how you do it, and I'm just saying, That's ladies, cool. if you're listening to this, yep, women. I think right now are a, a slight majority in the United States. So if all things are, stay the same, if we purely go by gender lines, we could do this. We can overtake the men. Not, not that I'm you know advocating for a female revolution, but um, let's turn, <laughs> let's turn to Latin no, America. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. What? What? Um, but let's turn to Latin America. So I, of course, am from Mexico, and Latin America is known to be machista, right? We always talk about this concept of machismo, which is uh, this idea that women fall into two categories, either they're sexual beings to be conquered and possessed, or mothers that embody everything virtuous and gracious and worthy of praise in female nature, and um, Surprisingly, very surprisingly, Latin America has a phenomenal track record when it comes to female leaders. So the first female to hold a presidential office in Latin America was in 1974 with Isabel Perón in Chile. And then after that, you had Bolivia in 1979 with Lenga Linda Guille Tejada, and then um, you've got Ecuador in 97, Nicaragua in 99, Panama in 99, Chile in 2006, Argentina in 2007. And then in 2010, you saw a string of three female heads of state in Latin America, when Chile, Brazil, and Bolivia. And, of course, most recently, in 2022, Dina Boluarte became the female leader of Peru. So, you know, it, it got me thinking, how is it that this idea, this machismo concept of Latin America hasn't translated into that election. How is it that all these Latin America's countries that I've listed have had a female head of state and the US hasn't? And um, in prepping for this episode, I came across two theories. Um, the first one, I think, is the better theory. Um, it, it talks about Latin American guerrillas and revolutions. So in in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, a lot of these Latin American countries did go through insurrections. Um, just Argentina alone had uh, six presidents within the span of five years, which is crazy. Um, And during these insurrections, two things happened. Number one, women also got involved and took leadership positions in the insurrections, either administratively or while men were at war, women rose to heads of households and from their heads of state. And I think that that's a a pretty good historic theory. And uh, the second one, which I think is a a worse theory, but it's worth mentioning, is the theory of overcompensation. So like we said, Latin America is very machista, but obviously, um, or, or Sometimes, usually. Uh, People who are the most machista are also the most vulnerable, and it's something that they're craving, right? So in Latin American culture, the mother is an archetype that's very powerful. So it could be that this machismo also gave way for this idea of, uh, you know, strong man is actually scared boy who wants mommy to take care of him. Again, I don't think it's the best theory, but I, I do think it's worth mentioning. Unfortunately, Mexico, my home country, has not had a female head of state, but they have had some women in notable positions of power. So, I'm not fully mad about it, but uh, it's funny how, you know, I've lived in Mexico, I lived in the US, and neither of them, neither in my lifetime nor in history, have had a female president. But uh, what has it been like in Egypt?
1: Well, before I move on to Egypt, I do want to say on the overcompensation point I I know that we both dismiss it in a lot of ways because it seems a little ridiculous, but I think there's something there, even if it's, you know, 10% of what's really happening. we can't ignore, like, these social and cultural things that happen on a very small, even, like, nuke- nuclear family level that translate onto grander scales. We've seen it mm-hmm. happen in throughout history. We see it happen now. We see people, um, it, it, is, it is a proven fact that young Americans will vote and register with the political far- party that their parents are affiliated with. So it's not crazy to think that some of the things that, are passed down to us from older generations are things that we internalize even though we might not be consciously choosing them. Um, Okay, Egypt. So when we talk about Egypt, it's really hard not to include thousands thousands of years worth of history because it's all Egyptian history. Egypt has existed for thousands of years and it will exist for a thousand more. Um, But that means that we have to go back to the BCE era to talk about influential, powerful women leaders. In Egyptian history, Um, in fact, some of Egypt's most celebrated and influential leaders were women. Among them, and I'm going to butcher these, please forgive me and don't take away my Egyptian card, uh, Sober Knufu, Hatshepsut, and Cleopatra. Um, There's also some incredibly early records of women ruling in ancient Egypt, but Sober Knufu was the first female pharaoh of which there's confirmed proof. Her rule lasted just four years, and she reigned from 1806 to 1802 BCE. Now, we fast forward a couple of centuries. Women in Egypt gained suffrage and the right to run for election with the 1956 Constitution. And before the 1979 elections, Egypt implemented a quota of 30 seats, or just about 9% uh, of of total seats in the People's Assembly um, for women. In 2019, Egypt amended that constitution to reserve 25% of seats in parliament for women, leading to a dramatic rise in women's participation in politics. Um, And obviously between uh, 1979 and 2019, there was other reforms and changes, but those two are the most notable. Um, Now, this episode's all about women in uh, presidential leaderships or in head of state roles, and Although Egypt hasn't had a lot of women that have uh, said they'd run for president or have been able to run for president, there are a few notable ones. And um, I, I w- probably won't do him justice in that. I won't mention every single one because there's there's quite a f- couple. But um, one of my idols uh, is Nawal Saadawi. And if you know anything about Egyptian history or rather Arab history or Arab literature, in fact, you've heard the name Nawal Saadawi. And Nawal Saadawi was a... Uh, prominent um, writer, poet, political leader—you uh, know, social and cultural figure in Egypt—and um, she actually just died recently. Um, she was an absolute powerhouse. If you're—if we're talking about women leaders, if we're talking about women who shaped the our societal norms of what it means to be a woman, what it means to exist as a woman in our cultures, Nawal Sadawi's top of that list. Um, she wrote extensively about um, women in Egyptian society, the difficulties and challenges they faced on an everyday basis. She wrote about uh, female genital mut- mutilation, which is a huge issue in Egypt and across the Arab world. Um, we should definitely do an episode about that. Just side mm-hmm. note, um, and uh, she wrote about women incarceration. I remember she like sat down with an incarcerated woman and wrote this beautiful short story about her. Um, and she had announced that she might be running for president at one point under a Mubarak, uh, election. And I'll put election in quotes there because it wasn't <laughs> really an election. Um, but Noel Sadawi, it, it was hard to talk about women. It would be unwise of me to talk about leadership and women, female leadership, especially in Egypt without mentioning Noel. Um, may she rest in peace. Um, so that is, that is Egypt. It's, um, it's unfortunately not a lot, but it's, it's something, and I, I do hope in the future, uh, we're at a point where we can get there. Um, but before then we have some bigger issues and bigger fish to fry. Um, and obviously I want to dig a little bit deeper on some of the things we talked about earlier in the episode. Um, Adela, why don't you lead us?
0: Yeah, well, first off, I just want to point out that, um, the fact that Pakistan has had a female leader um, and women in position of power. So that should have definitely been a red flag throughout this episode that people should keep in mind. Right. Like we keep saying, like, are we ready for a women president? Why is this a conversation? Right. And and that takes me to, to the first issue that we, we did discuss is um, are women leaders taken seriously? Because it feels to me that every time something goes awry, Um, you know, and and, and something goes wrong with a female leader in power, people always have to say, oh, well, do you think it's because she's female, right? And it's... This additional hurdle to overcome, because everyone turns to the fact that you are a woman to account for the flaw. And um, if you just look at the last two presidents of the U.S., Joe Biden, Donald Trump, both of them had a ton of flaws. But you know, when it, either if it came to the balloon, if it came to the papers that are found in their cars, like no one has ever said, well, it's because they're a man. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong because now there's you know radical feminism that goes and blames everything on the fact that they are men, and that that's fine. Yes, radical feminism and radical machismo, and like they're they're terrible. Both we we shouldn't be looking at that. To me. I think that, um, that brings a a bigger issue of identity into this. And I, I really look forward to the day where you can run as a woman and that's not a topic of conversation. Definitely not when you do something wrong because when a female leader has a victory, no one ever goes and you know what? It's because she's female. We should focus on our leadership qualities. We should focus on how qualified we are. We should focus on our credentials. We should focus on leadership skills, um, right? Like I'm, I'm in law school and I'll see two people stand in front of me to deliver opening statements to classmates. And some females give phenomenal, phenomenal opening statements. And some men also do a fantastic job. And then there's people on both genders that come out and when they do their opening statements, they're just kind of meh, right? So we should look at what people's qualities are. Like I said, I'm I'm very much a fan of the meritocracy. And um, we opened this conversation talking about Nikki Haley and how she threw her hat in the race. And everyone's been asking my opinion on this. And uh, first off, I want to say Nikki Haley is a phenomenal leader. She was Um, born into a lower to middle class family. Her family is working class. Her family had a store. She worked in her family store. She has this phenomenal work ethic, um, and she really is a a strong pro-America leader. She did a great job at the United Nations under President Trump, but I don't think that she is going to win. I don't think she has a strong chance in this election and it has nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman or not a woman. Um, I think it's because um, she distanced herself from Trump, which was a smart political move, but at the same time she dropped out of the political scene and we haven't really heard from her in the last four years or so and um, I think that she's going to have to really overcome that. I think she's going to have to Make herself relevant again. I think that if she would have thrown her hat in the race one cycle ago, she would have had a much stronger chance. So those are my two cents on Nikki Haley and on female leaders in general.
1: Thank you, Adela. And she does have two years. I, I, you know, won't say if if I am or if I am not a Nikki Haley fan, but there is a little bit of runway for her to gain that mm-hmm. momentum and that steam that you're talking about. Um, and it'll be fun watching her and all the other women that I'm sure will throw their hats. Um, in the race. And on that note, thank you so much for listening. As always, you can support us by subscribing to our Instagram for just $5 a month so we can keep making Americanish happen. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to Americanish. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok for exclusive content. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.